Yeah, well, you know, it's like when I start arguing against with Americans about the uh, you know the Second Amendment um, stuff, you know, yeah. um, and and they'll say they'll say if you don't like it, go home, and I'll say, listen, dude, your First Amendment right uh, gives me the right to tell you that your Second Amendment sucks dog balls. You know, it's like um, <laughs> so just. Just get get with us. Hey guys, so in this episode, I'm chatting to Brett King. He is a world-renowned futurist and speaker, international best-selling author, and host of a very cool podcast that apparently has more episodes than this one. Uh, it is called Breaking Banks, uh, which has a listenership of over 6.5 million people. This guy is the real deal. Uh, he even is, uh, has a digital bank called Moven, that's M-O-V-E-N, um, and he's based in New York. And so the story starts uh, in the context of the coronavirus. Um, and I got chatting to Brett really about the impact of the coronavirus on uh, capitalism. And so the question for this particular episode is, is the coronavirus going to ruin capitalism forever? Um, and I don't want to give away too much more than that, but pay careful attention to uh, the part of the show where Brett reveals what he would do if... He didn't have to work, which is quite a real interesting scenario where workforce displacement is becoming more and more a thing. So without further ado, enter Brett King. And we're live. (laughs) How's it, guys? Welcome back to another cracking installment of uh, this uh, crazy show, which uh, seemingly won't go away. Uh, in your earbuds. Um, and today I'm joined by um, an Australian, if you can believe that, living in New York uh, amongst the myths and terror and chaos and panic of the coronavirus. Brett King, welcome to the show. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Good, man. Good. Um, Going to you live from New York. Under lockdown. How's that working under out for lockdown. you? Just ex- exp- well, you describe know, everything. What's I, going on there? I, I'm I'm about three days from running out of toilet paper because you can't get any. No, no, um, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, last night we went out for for a run to get some some groceries, um, knowing that uh, you're going to have stay in place order, which is uh, going to happen probably later today. Stay in place order means that you are allowed to go out, but only for essential uh, um, things. So you can you can go out to the groceries, you can go out to pick up food. Or you can go to a health center, you know, like a hospital or a, um, uh, urgent care medical center. But pretty much everything else is closed. Restaurants are closed. Schools are closed. Um, you know, they're they're limiting the subway use. You know, et cetera. It's it's pretty um, it's pretty surreal to be in New York during mm. uh, this type of uh, a period. But um, you know, the the you. The U.S. is quite unique in their response to coronavirus in that um, almost half of Americans don't even believe that it's true um, or believe that it's been overblown. So um, where you've got uh, markets like or, or, or economies, countries like, say, China or Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, where the government says, hey, we've got this big virus coming, this is what you need to do, everyone's like, yep, on it straight away, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the US they're like, oh, let's go down and buy some guns because, you know, in case people come and try to steal our food and toilet paper. It's, it's insane. The response here is, uh, as an outsider that's lived here for a decade, um, it, it, I still can't get quite get my head around uh, um, the, the US psyche sometimes, but anyway. 
Well, yeah, it is frightening. I'm actually moving to the States. I was. Uh, I don't know what's going to be left. Uh, could be martial law and panic in the streets. You never know with these kind of things. To your point, it is fresh. Martial law was martial law was trending on Twitter here the other day. But really? It was spelled martial as in A M A R S H A L L. All my American listeners uh, probably don't think it's yes. that funny. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, anyway, hilarious, buddy. Yeah, well, look, um, I hope uh, hope things, uh, you know, are okay over there. Well, it's a, it's a global thing now, and I think we're recognizing as that. I think the, the really interesting part of this is that, um, it, it, you know, the U.S. has been praised, you know, for their economic performance, um, the most successful economy ever built in history, theoretically, um, uh, you know, but when you look at the way this economy works, it works on the basis that productivity and efficiency are, uh, you know, the central goal. And so when you have a healthcare system, the reason it's privatised is the theory is that it can be much, much more efficient than a nationalised or, um, you know, government-run system. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, you run it with minimal overcapacity because you don't want to have excess capacity that's not generating your returns. And so in today's situation, that leaves the U.S. massively exposed to this problem of filling up their capacity very, very quickly, not having enough um, respirators for people who fall ill with coronavirus. So there is a real question as to whether or not under these extreme scenarios, whether um, capitalism is able to provide what is required for the citizens in the United States. Mm. Um, and the answer right now, based on the, the, the response that we've seen so far, would appear to be um, you know, a clear no. Um, but we are yet to the point where the hospitals are overwhelmed here, but there's sort of an anticipation that it's coming. Well, I think that's a pretty good point of departure around the premise for this episode because we're going to talk about, um, you know, has the coronavirus or is the coronavirus going to kill capitalism? Capitalism, um, And um, I guess, I, you know, it's a black swan event. I've had a couple of people on the show now and coronavirus seems to always come up for obvious reasons. But um, certainly it feels like we're living in a, in a black swan event. Is that is that fair to say? Would you characterize as, as you know, where are we at today? Well, a, a black swan event is something that we didn't anticipate, came out of the blue, unexpected, and, um, you know, really sort of changed markets and, and changed the way we thought of things. The problem is we've known this is coming. We've known for some time. There's a great video going around from uh, Bill Gates, a yeah. TEDx talk in 2015 right now, which shows that we knew this was coming. Now, um, you know, the conspiracy theorists are going, well, you know, Gates obviously designed it, you know. (laughs) Um, But uh, the reality is, um, you know, we've seen pandemics occur all throughout human history. Um, The... the, the bubonic plague, yellow fever, the Spanish flu, etc., and it's just a matter of time before we had had something like this. And the reality is, um, our um, the increase in air travel and all of that—that's a new thing. We didn't have that back after the uh, the war when the Spanish flu hit, um, but you know we have we we have it now. So the ability to sort of fast track uh, a sort of a global pandemic like this because of that has been is is. Uh, um, you know, it is the, the unknown factor in terms of how quickly this would spread. 
but we've known for a while. So I don't uh, actually, I, I don't see it as a black swan event. I see it as the fact that we knew it was coming. Um, but the black swan part of it is, uh, or, or the downside is, we, we even though we had preparations in place, even though we knew exactly what was going to happen and exactly how we could mitigate the risk, when it came to the crunch, um, the globe didn't respond in the way that we had planned. Um, you know, the nations broke apart in terms of their uh, compliance with the WHO guidelines that they'd signed on to. You had politics start to get involved. Uh, you know, you have uh, you have uh, social media impact. You know, the US election, um, coming US election was obviously a, a big element in terms of Trump's uh, initial reactions to this. Um, and so I don't think it's a black swan event. I think what it is is I think we knew it was coming. I think we were we we knew what we had to do um, to prepare for it. Um, we weren't prepared to spend the money on preparing for it in the way we needed to. Mm-hmm. And when it did come, we didn't react in the way that we had spent many years planning to because of uh, you know local politics and things like that. So it, it we could have. Um, reacted much better that's all i'm saying i guess yeah we certainly got uh, feels to me like we got caught with our pants down with this one yep. and um the other thing that's irritating me about trump at the moment is that he keeps calling this a fucking chinese virus have you seen that stuff i have and having lived in hong kong and going through sars um you know which, which i did in 2003 it's just not helpful um and this requires a coherent global response to be effective, which requires governments to be working together. You can't have that if someone like Trump, you know, one of the, uh, um, uh, you know, one of the, the um, m- more powerful leaders in the world today is criticising China and claiming it's them. It's just not helpful. It, it's not going to produce an outcome that's beneficial to the Americans or anyone else. So, um yeah, it, it's it's disappointing. Um, you know, the the reality is, um, you know, we've had a lot of coronaviruses from a lot of different sources. There's been uh, U.S. coronaviruses. There's been MERS, the Middle Eastern uh, um, uh, respiratory syndrome, syndrome. We had SARS, of course, which mm-hmm. uh, um, you know uh, affected Canada significantly during that time. But obviously, you know, the epicenter was in places like Hong Kong, China, southern China, and and um, Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it doesn't make sense labelling this as a Chinese virus. Very unhelpful and, um, you know, really is designed again to sort of pass the buck from the mistakes that Trump has made early on in the piece where he called it a democratic hoax, where he said we've got 15 people infected, it's going down to zero, we're doing really well, all this messaging that was just wrong. Mm. Um, and so now that it's, it's uh, sort of, you know, blown back in his face, he's like, whoa, 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 you know, it's a Chinese virus, which yeah. is typical Trump deflection uh, um, technique, unfortunately. Divide and conquer, misinformation, and uh, yeah. that's that. And that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, it's a sad thing. I must be careful what I say here because I'm still waiting for my green card to be processed. <laughs> so, well, I'm here, so. Yeah, well, I mean, they let you, you know, in, you know. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. And you're Australian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. well. You know, it's like when I start arguing again with Americans about the, uh, you know, the Second Amendment um, stuff, you know, yeah. um, and, and they'll say, they'll say, if you don't like it, go home. And I'll say, listen, dude, your First Amendment right 
that gives me the right to tell you that your second amendment sucks dog balls you know it's like um, <laughs> so just just get get with it so uh anyway that's funny that's got to be the cliffhanger for this show <laughs> so let's get into the market stuff because uh, i think we can it's fair to say that the 11-year bull market is officially dead um oh, yeah <laughs> yeah okay yeah mm-hmm. um and- well you know the big question right now is is it going to be um as big as the the depression um well and i think in terms of losses it probably already is up there but um but I, I do think once we get to a new normal, I think it will return, you know, to uh, uh, recover most of the way. But it's going to take a few months before we, we get to that, you know. Yeah, I was uh, reading about the impact of this virus on um, on markets and the U.S. travel industry is forecast to lose up to $24 billion and about yeah. 825,000 jobs, I think it was the number that I recall, um, would actually lose, they would lose employment, which is frightening. Yes. It's frightening. Yeah, does um, Mnuchin, the, the um, uh, secretary, whatever he is now, um, economy guy here for Trump administration said um, that they're expecting 20% unemployment because of coronavirus. Um, and so you got a lot of, you got a lot of proposals, um, which is, is crazy because, you know, they've been, um, very very bullish in the past, um, but um, I, I think the you, you, you the key issue you've got is there's no social safety net for any of those people really. Um, you know, unemployment benefits are difficult to get here, difficult to qualify for. So you've got a lot of people right now. For example, hotel workers, um, you know, restaurant uh, you know workers uh, and so forth who, that have been laid off that live paycheck to paycheck. You know, mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, this is this is really serious. The the it, you know, over half of Americans don't have enough saved to be able to handle a four hundred dollar shock to their uh, their budget. You know, um, and so this is really where it comes down to is 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 even though this is the richest nation in the world, it's only taken this virus to completely unravel the system here. Mm. and show its shortcomings. So, um, you know, if you're, and this is, this, we're not talking about a failure that affects a small percentage of the population here. You know, we're talking about the fact that, um, it, you know, a, a, the majority of people are going to be dramatically economically affected by coronavirus and are going to get to the point where they cannot pay their rent they you know, don't have enough money for food. You know, we're talking about some really critical uh, issues here, mm-hmm. let alone the fact that if they do get coronavirus and they go in to uh, get tested, in most cases they're going to have to pay $1,300 because, you know, 20% of Americans don't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to pay $1,300 to get tested. Then if they require treatment, they, they are going to have to pay for the treatment themselves. Now, understand that 67% of all bankruptcies in the United States are medical costs related. 
So you can imagine what coronavirus is going to do to the health of uh, uh, the the U.S. economy when it comes to the average American. Did you hear that um, that balls up that uh, Trump made when he did that? You know, state of the nation. You know, when he banned European travel, and he kind of cocked up a, lot, a few things in that in that speech, even though it was pre-scripted and what have you. Um, uh, Trevor Noah has got a fantastic um, sort of uh, take on that, but um, but. The one of the things he said was, "Yeah, don't worry. As part of the, we've, we've negotiated. I've gone out and done a deal with the health companies of America, and you know, if you get COVID, if you get coronavirus, you're covered. It's all good. We're sweet. But meanwhile, the truth of the matter was, it wasn't that. You still have to pay for all of your treatments, and then the only thing that's covered partially is the test itself." Yeah. Well, um, the other aspect of this is, uh, you know, I've got my radio show going out tomorrow and we just uh, we just pre-recorded it uh, yesterday. Um, and on the show, we had um, uh, Yobi Benjamin, who runs a biomed company and he's been producing tests. So he offered tests to, um, the, you know, the Californians, to um, New York City and so forth, over 300,000 tests. He was able to even, um, you know, create pop-up labs in, in New York to be able to test people rapidly and turn around the results within uh, within a few hours. And uh, he, despite um, offering 300,000 tests to the, uh, the governments to do this, he was told he couldn't uh, set up these labs because he wasn't uh, clear that CLIA compliant, which is a laboratory standard um, issued by the FDA. So, you know, only two companies, um, Quest and, I don't know, one of the companies associated with Walgreens, were licensed to test. And as a result, last week, only 77 tests were done in the United States. Um, and so this is insane. This is yeah, insane. And so even when you have Bill Gates com- coming in and... Um, you know, uh, you have uh, Jack Ma sending in tests and you have other you know, people like this doing this. The the capitalist system is such that you, you can't break into that system because the bureaucracy is rewarding these, these few companies that are licensed according to the US regs. And so now they're trying to um, put in place a, a way to circumvent these FDA regulations. But the problem with this, this has wasted extremely you know, valuable time. Um, what we've seen from South Korea is that testing is absolutely critical to being able to understand what's going on with this virus in real time. And so that lack of testing in the United States is giving them, um, you know, like bad numbers. That we, we just don't know how bad it, it is in the United States because we haven't got an accurate uh, data set or denominator in, in respect to uh, uh, these, these metrics. So, um, yeah. Do you know what the, the the testing sort of product actually is, or the testing process actually is? Is it kind of like a swab in your mouth, and then you put it in the dye, and then you get it instantly? Like, like, and then what's the cost of testing? I mean, because surely it would be a very similar test to something like that was around for SARS or H one N one or whatever the case sure. is. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, 
blocks all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So they swap both your mouth and your nasal passages. It takes, depending on the types of labs set up, the rapid test results take 30 to 45 minutes. Others take up to four hours to to do. Um, The... You know, the figures that Yobi shared with us is that, you know, for their lab, uh, you know, a, a test is going to cost about 80 to $90 to produce and uh, come up with the results. Um, and the U.S. is uh, allowed um, a $36 payment to those companies for providing those tests. So we've already got a problem right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cost to, but here's the, that's the cost the, the raw cost of a test, but what a patient pays in the United States today is thirteen hundred dollars to undergo a test. Are you serious? And so is that I, is I that the actual serious. number? Yeah, yeah. And for me, if it was me, um, you know, I've got health coverage in the United States, which I pay three and a half thousand US dollars a month for, um, which is insane. Um, and that would give me a $400 copay. So um, of the $1,300, $900 of that would be covered by insurance, $400 I'd have to pay. Jeez. You know, that's, for, yeah, yeah. that's for an $80 test. I've been advised by a few entrepreneurs that have made the jump over the pond uh, to the States to keep the health insurance I have here because of the clusterfuck that the health insurance industry is over there in the States. Well, just make sure that your health insurance that you've got covers treatment in the United States because a lot of uh, coverage, I had coverage out of Asia, and um, they, they have a, a, a very real limit in terms of the cost of, um, of treatment here. You know, um, Americans will often proclaim that they have the best healthcare system in the world, um, you know, if you can afford to pay for it. Mm. Um, but I, I challenge that now. There are areas of the world where um, certainly, um, you know, there there are various elements where technically I think um, offshore you get better better service, better treatments. Mm. Um, but the cost is insane. I, you know, I went and did a full physical last year in in Thailand where I have a, an apartment, and uh, you know, full physical, um, you know, with with all the works. MRI stress test of the heart, everything. Um, you know, uh, we're talking about eight hundred dollars in total. The results were in real time. You know, I would take blood tests. I would come back twenty minutes later and do that. Um, you know, it was was really uh, um, a, a, and the, the the quality of the equipment in the hospital, the training of the the uh, the physicians, everything was top notch. Um, this the same. You know, just just one of the procedures that I did in, in as part of that physical in Thailand would have been fourteen thousand US dollars in the United States. It just doesn't that just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, there, there's um, this is where you've got a completely privatized sort of healthcare system as I think failed uh, failed Americans and and sort of failed. But you know, this is this is where we're seeing it. 
um, pan out now here. Well, you see, the thing with this whole coronavirus for me, it's not necessarily the virus. It's, it's, it is, but it's not really because it's the impact of the virus on the system. So the capitalistic system, the economy, the like, and then of course the ripple effects that all of this has. I mean, you, we know that the, we touched on the stock markets, uh, bull runs officially over you know, um, 3,000 points wiped out in a single day. There was a, a, a rally back up to another 1,000 points, I think, on the NASDAQ. Um, and, uh, it's dropped again today. And it's yeah. dropped again well, it's today. Dropping. The only thing that annoys me about this is the Bitcoin price won't run. <laughs> but uh, we wait and see, okay? Um, wow. Well, you know, if, you if you've got a bit of cash, you can afford to buy, buy in uh, to anything right now. It's, it's, it's probably um, yeah. a good plan, but it's going to take a while. But, but uh, you know... Yeah. It, 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 this is it. This is it, this this is where we get to. Is is this a failure of capitalism? You know, is, is capitalism failures? Well, the thing is, what's interesting that you see, we're in a kind of a unique situation, right? Because what's happening in New York, where you are, for us or for me, it's like watching a car crash happen before it happens. So, if New York closes its subway, it bans people from restaurants, bars, pubs, and things like this, um, and it literally locks down its people to to stop the the spread of the virus when that happens in a developed economy like new york you know sure as shit that's going to happen here so the only thing that you can do is take the necessary steps in order to figure out well i've got a little bit of lead time here as opposed to you in new york where it was just you wake up one morning and suddenly you can't move Right, um, and and we're seeing like retail chains shut down, events companies being obliterated, travel companies shutting down. A friend of mine runs a travel agency, and he's panicking. He said, literally every booking he's made for this entire year has been cancelled for obvious for obvious reasons, um, and it's decimating entire economies literally overnight. And it's and as you touched on this, we, you know, black swan idea, where it's a combination of events that are just un prepared for completely as i mentioned earlier we kind of got our caught with our pants down um and we're looking for leadership to stand up and lead and to make decisions for us to give us a sense of you know comfort despite all of our fear um and we've got leaders who like trump are not doing that job well enough it's like they're trying to protect the election as opposed to protecting the people um, and so more broadly, then you look at the, the economic system and you say to yourself, well, what's next? Because, you know, we've, the health system for me is a big one. And I think it's going to pose some massive questions for us to answer as we move through this. Um, you know, when the shit hits the fan, the only way out is through. Right. And so when we come through it, like, where are we going to be and what will the system need to be in order to safeguard, you know, our Future livelihoods, financially and otherwise. Well, well, this this is uh, actually what I'm writing on in my new book, which is entitled "The Rise of Techno Socialism." And so, I started uh, writing this about a year ago. And my premise was that there are a number of black swan events or shocks to the system that were coming, that were largely inevitable, um, and that would change the way we thought about economics and, and democracy you know, for the next uh, couple hundred years. And, uh, you know, um, while the outlier of a pandemic was certainly something I discussed, and I discussed it in respect to both the fact that, you know, air travel uh, is, is, was always thought to accelerate this, but secondly, um, as climate change occurs, um, 
you know, uh, viruses are coming out of glaciers and stuff like that that we don't have immunity to because haven't been seen on the earth for you know hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so um, th there was that on the healthcare side, but more critically, there was artificial intelligence producing this, you know, potentially the same level of unemployment that we're talking about with uh, uh, the coronavirus impacting um, because of, you know, uh, algorithms and robots replacing humans and then climate the impact of climate change you know you've got uh, potentially 300 million people in coastal cities that will be displaced by sea rise over the next uh, 50 years or so and so you know th these are both events that would completely reshape the way we think about the world and um, the problem with capitalism as we see with the pandemic is it's not incentivized to address these issues. You know, when you have capitalism is geared towards the, the next quarterly or annual results of a company in the market so that shareholders make their money, you know, that's at the very heart of capitalism. And um, it, it, there's no mechanism where you should be trading off profits for a company next quarter for what could potentially happen in 30 or 40 years as a result of climate change. There's, you know, um, the, the market is just not incentivized to make those trade-offs. And so that's where the problem lies here. And the other aspect of it is, and you see this more so in America than and you see it in other places, is for those, you know, 46% of Americans today that don't believe coronavirus, that believe it's a hoax, you know, Still. Um, yeah, when, in spite of all the evidence, um, when, when you look at that and you say, why is, why is that mentality emerging? Then it, what you look at is, as in an ultra-capitalist society like the United States, you're always incentivized that you, you know, where you want to be the winner, right? Mm. And that means other people can lose and that's fine as long as money's going into your pocket. And so that's very much the mentality of the US system, you know, and the reason the arguments for so long that universal healthcare has, has not been able to take a, a hold here is, you know, wealthier people have access to health insurance say, well, you're just not working hard enough if you don't have health coverage. Right? Mm -hmm. And you've got people working three jobs on minimum wage, you know, and even at that basis, they can't afford even basic health, uh, health coverage. They can't afford a two-bedroom apartment on, on uh, minimum wage working 40 hours a week, right? Mm. So, um, you know, you, you have to look at that and say this um, view that let's look after number one, let's focus on ourselves at the cost of everything else, the, the rights of the individual should uh, uh, prevail. That doesn't work because we're in a society. So, you know, one of the things I've been saying is, you know, in the US you have this MAGA, you know, make America great again um, sort of premise behind Trump. But when you, when you look at the needs of society, we have to start thinking about species first, not nation first right? Mm. Hum humanity as a whole first. And this collective view is going to give us a much, much better chance of surviving and getting through this. But we have to dispense with the whole concept uh, or at least elements of the concept of the market. We have to be, you know, 
I don't know how we're going to go, you know, like the debt that we're going to incur over this, trillions and trillions of dollars that the governments are just going to um, put on their government credit cards to pay for all this stuff. Um, you know, at a certain point, um, this debt just becomes meaningless, you know, when, when, it's, uh, when it represents the entire GDP of a nation, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. There's a couple of great points there. The first one is around, um, you know, the private sector is not incentivized to take necessary steps to protect their employees, their business and things like that. I mean, I've spent like a ridiculous, shocking amount of money for me just to enable my team to work from home. And that was like, well, well who's paying for that? So for me, um, there's always a winner in this situation. And hopefully as entrepreneurs, as business owners, you can position yourself as the company who can take advantage of this, which is what we're looking to, to kind of do ourselves. The other thing to say is that, you know, there's a, I think it's something like a $1 trillion stimulus package that the U.S. government is looking at, at mobilizing. So there isn't a short supply of money, but what would the effect of that be? Where are they going to, they're going to print more money. The U.S. economy is already hyperinflating itself and, and therefore by consequence, all the other world's economies have started hyperinflating their own currency because of uh, the 2008 crash. And so when I look at that, I say to myself, well, what will the impact be if this is a black swan event and you have people who can't move, you've got OPEC nations like producing so much oil and, uh, you know, putting the oil price through the floor, you've got coronavirus, you've got, and then of course, that's probably the major catalyst in all of this because it has the, the, the biggest impact in the economic consequence of this for everybody. And I say it, I put out this this video on, on LinkedIn, uh, what my team did earlier today, where I said you can't be on the fence about this. If you're uncertain that you're in a fight for sustainable for sustainability in terms of either your your private wealth or your on, your your entrepreneurial venture and your own business, uh, like digital kung fu our business, I am very fucking concerned about the future. I really am. Not five years from now, but in the next six months to a year. What's this mark? What's my market going to look like? What does my operational structures need to look like? And what will they look like? Is it a permanent thing? Is it a short-term thing? Um, and there's just more questions than anybody has answers for. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, you write about all this stuff uh, all the time. You've got Mervin. Yeah, you've yeah, you, you got your own digital bank. Uh, you, you've written more books than I will probably ever write in my life. Congratulations. Uh, you also have more podcasts than me, so screw you. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, no worries, man. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, and uh, and you're obviously well versed in this thing. But what is your words of wisdom to to take myself as an example? Or well, I've got a huge, um, you know, entrepreneurial focused audience here, C suites as well, and they're looking at all of this and they're concerned about the future. Where how does one begin to cultivate a mindset of relevance and sort of hope in this kind of climate that we mm. seemingly are inheriting? Well, you know, actually, I'm I'm quite optimistic that we come out of this with a better system than we went into it with. Um, and I, I generally thought that it's inevitable that we have to go through a transition to a different state um, because it, if it wasn't this pandemic, it was going to be AI or climate change that was going to get us there anyway. Um, and I don't think the battle is going to be over. I think the the capitalist system will still fight for relevance uh, after after things settle down here but I, I do think that, that we're getting to the point with technology um, where we can actually solve a huge number of problems and so when you look at something like 
um, universal basic income as an element. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, that's, you know, like it's gonna, if you give UBI a thousand or two thousand dollars a month to every American, then that's more than the entire IRS revenue that they take in, right? You know, there's numbers like this floats around. But then when you say, well, look, at, let's look at universal health care, let's look at education, let's look at um, um, housing and shelter for homeless and so forth, the techn technical advances that we've made in recent years and the advances we're going to make over the next 50 years mean that we'll be able to provide those elements of society at a a fraction of the cost of what typically has uh, has cost governments to do. And so, um, you know, housing a homeless person, today if you, you know, you're in Los Angeles, uh, you know, a homeless person living on Skid Row, and there's over 50,000, 60,000 of them on Skid Row right now, and that's another discussion around how coronavirus is going to deal with that. But on average, the policing costs and the medical costs of managing that group works out to about $35,000 per person, right? And we can now use 3D printing technology to build them a home for three grand, right? A basic apartment for 3,000. And so you, you have the technology to solve this problem. We don't have the will to solve this problem right now. If you look at healthcare um, in the future, we will manage costs around healthcare because we'll be predictive in nature. So we'll monitor your, uh, you will, we'll have your DNA, we'll monitor blood work, we'll monitor your health through uh, sensors, whether they're ingestibles or sensors that you wear on a smartwatch or in your clothing or something like that. We, we will monitor your healthcare and, and we'll be preventative in nature. So it, it, we'll use AI to diagnose conditions. We won't sort of guess at what your condition is. Um, you know, we'll have all this, this data to bring to bear, which means we'll be able to treat issues that come up at a fraction of the cost. Education will be ubiquitous. Um, you know, we're seeing evidence of what, you know, kids being forced to have schooling at home, but in the future, they'll be able to put on their VR rig and be in a, a virtual classroom and things like that. And again, the cost of providing a really high quality education through this technology layer will be very cheap. So you've got elements of um, what we would traditionally call socialism, where in the future, it's going to be more effective just to go with the flow and implement this technology to provide those, those basic services for society than to argue against it, frankly, because, uh, you know, um, that the cost will just be, uh, will be reduced through tech. So there's some, some positives coming out of, the, uh, out of the end of this, but it's, it's going to take humans, you know, probably the good part of 20 or 30 years to get into that change of psyche. Um, and sort of grapple with these changes and how to, how to best uh, um, introduce these into society. You know, as you start introducing all this automation, you're going to have a lot of skills displaced. And so people are talking about taxing robots and things like that to sort of try and mitigate the risk of that. But the reality is, you know, if you don't have universal basic income or something like it in place for people who are displaced by things like coronavirus or artificial intelligence, Mm. then you're going to have social unrest. Mm. And so at some point you're saying, well, it's a risk mitigation strategy for, you know, having a revolution uh, take place, you know. It, so, um, and and the, cap the capitalist system is not going to say we don't want robots um, taking mm. humans' jobs because the entire stock market is geared towards productivity, you know. So a lot of complexity there, but we come out of it better, better off than we are today, I hope. Mm -hmm. uh, but it requ it requires some 
some uh, real learning at a societal, um, you know, an economic level. Well, I like the fact that you're an optimist here. I think that's mm-hmm. great. You're a, you're a shining light amongst the dark. Congratulations. Um, so this workforce displacement thing is a, is a real one, right? Because I mean, the, this uh, that number eight hundred twenty five thousand jobs displaced just in the travel industry in the US. And then yeah. you think about, well, what are the other affected industries and then the suppliers of those industries? And so suddenly that number starts to look like 8 million quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, what do these people do? Because they cannot like absorb the hits of a $400 income difference. Um, you know, and then as you rightly pointed out, just think about health alone. You know, um, there's a, how do you, how do you manage that? Like, uh, there's a friend of mine who actually moved to Austin, Texas, where I'm going. And, uh, the week that the two, within two weeks, his daughter was playing or something like that. And she's, she apparently quote sprained her ankle. Right. Um, and so he went to the doctor and they looked at it and whatever, and then it went for an x-ray and then it went for another person. And in the end, the bill was $12,000 just, but the ankle, the, the funny part about that story was the ankle actually wasn't even sprained. It was, it was just, or sorry, not broken. It was just a little bit sprained. Um, and, um, and so he was like, well, what do I do with this? And he had health insurance. To your point, it was like the copay thing, and he was in for like three and a half grand in the hole within the first two weeks. Um, and so he's fortunate because he, he is financially independent. He has the cash to spend. But if you look at everybody else, the large majority, people in employment, you've got RPA, robotic process automation, et cetera, artificial intelligence, all this stuff. And you combine this then with the threat of like black swan events like the coronavirus, suddenly you start to look at the workforce and you go, well, how, what do we do with them? To your point, because the, the consequence, the, the very negative consequence, as you pointed out, is revolution. <laughs> because when people can't feed themselves, when they can't draw money out of ATMs, that's when the shit really hits the fan. And the scary part is, to your point around the Second Amendment, it's like, well, you know, I have a gun. So I will do what's necessary to protect my family. So these are kind of like some very, I know it sounds quite doomsday scenario, but it's actually quite real. It can happen. It's like we didn't think outside of Bill Gates and his TED talk, no one actually gave a shit about viruses yeah, because it was never going to happen to uh, America. Real. Yeah, it wasn't real. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing was that it actually happened. From it, it, They were like, oh, Ebola, Ebola in America. That's Sorry, Ebola in, in fucking Africa. That's where the problem is going to come. And meanwhile, Ling Ling, because she wanted to eat a bat, that's actually where, that's actually where, <laughs> no, is that bad? So, so dude, that, dude, that, that's, seriously. that's why, <laughs> that's why, so now we're all sitting with a trillion dollar problem. Just, uh, well, I don't know about Ling Ling, but anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, look, you're right. Um, and here's, here's the conundrum is, um, you know, at what point do you get to where you you say society can no longer absorb this level of a shock to the system? And, um, you know, normally that would take an extended period of time to become, uh, uh, you know, uh, apparent. But in, in, in the US today, that's happening in very short order. So, you know, here's the ironic thing is, you know, Bernie Sanders has been running for president here uh, over the last uh, few months. He ran, obviously, back in 2016 as well. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, 
the conservatives have been talking about socialism, 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 like it's it's um, like communism in the 1970s in the United States. It's a, a dirty word. No one wants to be labelized as a socialist here. But incredibly, in the space of now three weeks, they've gone from criticising Bernie for being a socialist to implementing massive socialist policies, you know, handing out cash, um, get, you know, guaranteeing sick leave, which, you know, there's no such thing as sick leave provisions in the United States. There's no law requiring sick leave, you know, until um, this uh, this law that's been proposed in the, the Senate today hopefully passes. Um, and so you've got a situation where um, they're, they're doing socialist things. They're saying, okay, Trump's saying you're not going to have to pay for your coronavirus test. This would have been unimaginable just a month ago mm. um, based on, on the US psyche. So you can see they, they understand exactly the risk of not doing these things. But it comes back to the point that until you had something like this, they, they weren't incentivized to, uh, to start thinking about this because it was all, the economy was all geared, um, you know, sort of this neo-feudalism where the corporations and the richest 1% of Americans had designed the system to have wealth flow back uphill constantly rather than to uh, most Americans. There's a really great uh, piece on this. Um, uh, Will Durant, who's a historian, American historian, um, wrote on the wealth of, uh, not wealth of nations, that's Adam Smith, but on uh, uh, history, history of the world. Um, and he wrote on the fact that there's basically two systems of governance that we've seen throughout history, um, a pyramid shape feudal system and a diamond-shaped, you know, distributed system. So if you look at most of human history, we've been in a feudal system where the 1% or the, the elites, uh, the, the, the lords in, in the, uh, the system or the monarchy, they control the mechanisms to create wealth. And so everyone underneath sort of works for the feudal system and the wealth flows uphill. But the most successful economies in history have been diamond-shaped. You know, phenomenally more successful. So you look at the post-Second World War US economy in the 60s and 70s, the creation of the American dream and all of that. This was the most productive economy we've ever seen throughout history. But it was, it was a diamond shape. The distribution of wealth went to the middle class. You, know, you had massive growth in the middle class. Consumption was really healthy. It was really positive. And China has gone from a system like this to a diamond-based system over the last 20 years, where, again, you've seen this massive creation of wealth in the middle class in China. As a result, their economy has been booming. But, um, you know, there's a theory out there that the elite don't like that, so they're always trying to flatten the curve, you know, mm -hmm. they're, I mean, flatten the diamond. And so that's what's happened in the United States since the 1980s, where you had the loss of collective bargaining and trade unions, you had uh, the deregulation of financial markets, you have all of these things geared again towards, you know, the wealth flowing, flowing uphill. And so um, really I think we're learning that, um, you know, these the systems that are equitable, that create more of a distribution um, that uh, are healthy for everybody. Uh, they're more effective economies, and they mitigate against risks like this. But um, you know, it's sort of breaking the back of this long-held system where um, you know the rich and powerful have been able to uh, control policy and strategy. Mm. The thing is, capitalism is the best system that we have. In many yeah, aspects. but it's flawed, and you know totally. what we've got it's to do flawed. is there is no yeah, perfect system. Right. 
Right. So we've got to learn from this and say, how do we improve on that? Um, but that's where humans, I think, um, you know, that that's what we're actually good at that stuff once we get our mind around it, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I think that's the point is that we can fix this, but we have to be of the mindset that it's broken. And this defense of, well, capitalism is the best system we have and so forth. And, you know, there's guys on my Facebook, uh, you know, page right now today um, when I talk about the fact that this has exposed the weaknesses in capitalism, they don't believe it. They, they're like, no, 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 this, this is the best system we've got. And yet um, it doesn't, it, it hasn't catered for coronavirus. It, it has no mechanism for that unless, you know, we're talking about wrecking huge national debt right now. Mm. Is the American dream alive or is it dead? It is dead. Um, you know, uh, you've got the greatest inequality in the United States uh, ever in history today. Um, you've got, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, two-thirds of Americans who can't afford a $400, um, uh, you know, shock to the, the system. You've got, um, uh, you know, an entire generation now, millennials and Gen Zs, who can't afford to buy their own home and will be renting for for the rest of their life, you know. So um, it, it, in terms of historically, what we would have said was, was um, yeah, he, here's the core of it. Why would people mo- want to move to America in the 70s and 80s, right? Because this great economy, but you knew that if you could get into the U.S. economy you would, and, and you were prepared to work hard, you knew your children would have a better life than you. And that was always at the heart of the American dream. Well, today, no matter what you do, your children are going to be worse off most likely unless you're part of the 1%. And so that's at the heart of what's missing in the American dream today is that you can not, it's no longer just based on the fact that if you work hard, you get ahead. That, that is no longer the case. The system is geared against you. Hmm. So Ling Ling shouldn't move to the States. And she shouldn't eat bats. No, but, uh, <laughs> um, but no, I think, uh, uh, you know, it, look, I, I, look, I don't know about moving to China either. Um, China is an incredible place. I do a lot of work in China. Um, I spent uh, seven years in in Hong Kong, so and and visited China numerous uh, times. I, I, you know, I was in uh, um, in uh, Shenzhen, January fifth and sixth. Mm-hmm. So very very close to the epicenter of this. Um, but having said all that, China is an incredible economy. But you know, the way of life in China is very different, foreign to to most Westerners in terms of the culture. It's effective in China, um, but, you know, um, it, it's, not a perfect, it's not a perfect system there either. Let me just say that. Yeah, it uh, seems to me that the world's looking for answers and nobody really has good ones. Because I suppose in this thing, it's, it's kind of, we, we're going to need to develop some kind of, I don't know, solution, right? That's going to protect the middle class. It's going to encourage the idea, the original seeds of the of the American dream, right? That if you do what, if you create value and you become a, a person of value, and you make a difference to others, that you will benefit, right? Well, here's 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 the really interesting thing. Let's say in thirty, forty years time, 
where automation has kicked in and manages many, many different parts of our society. You know, your groceries get delivered by robot, you have AI managing your healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. It's fairly realistic to expect that about 30 to 40% of people today that are working in jobs will be displaced. And so what are they going to do? Um, the number of working hours historically is reducing. So, you know, if you look at the start of the industrial revolution to today um, and you, you, you track that out to sort of 2030, 2040, um, we're working about 20 hours a week of productive time in the future. And so we're working less hours, less people have jobs. What is the role of work in society? You know, the, the, you know one of the first things that happened, you know, we, we get on the podcast today and you ask me, what do I, what do? I do? Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm, my work is defining me when I when I explain that to you. And yet, in the future, that's not going to be the way it is. So, if we have universal basic income for people who aren't employed, or even for people who are employed, you know, your basic costs of living are covered, like your housing, you know, food, um, you know, education for your kids, healthcare, as part of sort of this uh, technology-based socialist system. And, and, and even if you then have, you know, you can get all that covered, you're still going to want to do something. You're not going to sit on the couch in VR all day. Some people might, but you're still want to, going to want to do something. So your work may not be your profession, like a podcaster, you know, or whatever. Your work now may be what you pursue as a goal to better humanity. You know, it could be I'm involved in, uh, you know, climate change uh, mitigation. I'm in, um, I'm in, you know, involved in researching this or that, you know. And so um, we may have that freedom to actually really push forward the species because of the, these changes that take place. And, but it will change fundamentally the way society functions around things like uh, work and schooling and so forth. Now, if you have longevity treatments that kick in over the next 20 to 30 years and you now have the potential to live to 120 or 130 or even longer, well, how long would you spend schooling? You know, you wouldn't finish your schooling at the age of 18 or, you know, 22 in college. Mm -hmm. you'd, you'd probably continue learning until you're 30, right, mm -hmm. because you, there's no pressure for you to start work uh, immediately. It, the changes to society will be pretty uh, pretty intense. Yeah, I, I like that last, that point there, the last one around um, around what would the world look like in terms of careers if you didn't, mm -hmm. if a lot of this, the stuff that we do today that's manual was automated, and um, I guess you get two schools of thought, right? The first one is, well, the world will be unemployed, it'll be in the end times. And then the other one will be, well, because they're unemployed, they get to do other things, which will be creatively led. So looking for innovative solutions in bio, blah, blah, like yeah. <laughs> COVID-25, you know, and uh, yeah. that's what I do. I like, I like research, you know, bio solutions for COVID-25. Too soon? Too soon? Too soon. Too soon. Okay. Yes. That's great. Coming from you, Brett, but, I'll, but, I'll listen. But, you know, I do think that it, it would be, you know, like if I had an extra, you know, 70, 80 years to run, um, then I'd be going, well, maybe I'll go and spend uh, a decade on Mars, you know? I, yeah, the possibilities are sort of really out there. And so, you know, I think we're very limited right now today by the system we have because it's like, you work nine to five to make sure you got enough rent to pay, you know, enough money to pay the rent and then buy stuff on Amazon, right? And, and like, this is not purpose. <laughs> um, Lies. And, you know, if you, Lies, if, damn it. If, if, Fake if, you, news. if you don't listen. Yeah, if you, 
<laughs> if you read philosophers like Aristotle and stuff like that, these guys were saying the purpose of humanity should be to better itself as a species. The purpose of humanity should not be to survive but to thrive. And right now, you know, we're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how to, as a species, how do we get beyond that? And, and um, that is giving us the ability to be whatever we can be as a species. And that requires us to sort of dispense with this um, capitalist system in some manner um, that requires us to, uh, you know, basically just work to survive. So I think once we get over that work to survive piece and you have a universal basic asset structure or income structure in place, then you start to say, what can I do that I'm, in, I'm really passionate about? What can I do to improve the world? And so the, the outcomes of the hours that humans spend can be so much more productive in terms of determining our future. So tell me, Brett, what would you do? So forget keynote speaking, forget all, you can't be writing about augmented life in this, none of that. You can't do yeah. any more number one bestsellers, okay? I'm done. You're done with that now. You've moved on. So the world, you're unemployed. What do you do? What's your thing? What, what would light you up? Um, well, you know, I, I would love to maybe look at some technology for rebuilding the polar ice caps once they've, uh, they've melted. I'd, um, you know, maybe spraying polymers over, um, you know, ice when it, uh, when it does uh, regather and things like that, building up the, that, um, I would love to build, uh, or work on technology for carbon sequestration. So this is machines that can pull carbon out of the air and then use that carbon for, uh, positive things like using it to build structures or build new batteries and stuff like that using uh, carbon nanotubes for example um, I would love to uh, you know I would love to explore the solar system you know SpaceX and companies like that um, over the next 20 30 years will make that possible so um, yeah I got some uh, you know I, there's plenty of stuff uh, plenty of ideas I could come up with uh, um, to uh, uh, to use my time. So that's uh, that's great. That's congratulations. You know the thing. You know, <laughs> you know the thing that you see on movies, right? It's like I don't know what movie. Don't quote me on this, right? But you know when they go, it must be a space thing. I, I must. It's like an old movie, like from the eighties, where it was like a microwave or something, and then they took like this tiny little thing, little seed thing, and they. Oh, you know what it is? I got it. The world's best movie, um, The Fifth Element, when she takes the seed and she puts it in the microwave for like 10 seconds and then she opens it up and it's a roast chicken with roast potatoes. Yeah, well, they had the same thing in uh, Back to the Future, if you remember. They had a, uh, um, a pizza scene in Back to the Future where, um, you know, uh, 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 I, Michael J. Fox's bride in this case, but in the future, pops this very small pizza hut packet about this big into a rehydrator and it rehydrates the pizza and it comes out as a, huh. a large family pizza, you know. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, th- we'll, have, we'll have tech like that. It won't be rehydration or, uh, you know, popping a seed in a microwave, but it might be 3D food printers, um, you know, eventually it might be matter replicators like they have on Star Trek. Um, mm. So, you know, that, that's potential. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have robots. You know, it's really interesting. Back in those days, if you think about Fifth Element and you think about um, Back to the Future, we thought technology would be in improving the uh, preparation of food. But now where we're going with that is actually we're using technology to improve the convenience of getting food. So now you see movies like um, uh, Ready Player One. 
mm. and the drones are delivering pizza, uh, you know. Um, and so that's how we actually think of food production and delivery today. Also on the other side, we've got um, lab-grown meat and, uh, you know, mm. stuff like that that we're experimenting on, which is going to be uh, much better for humans. Certainly it's going to be big, big, strong arguments for uh, lab-grown meat post-coronavirus, given that we suspect that coronavirus came from an animal. You know, um, we're going to... I think that's gonna that's gonna be one of the spin-offs. <laughs> I actually met uh, I was we won uh, Africa's best tech startup award and we went to London and uh, I was at uh, Lancaster Gate. Congrats! Was, like, thank you. And I uh, went to Lancaster Gate. It was like this palace, and I was the only dude there wearing a printed shirt. Everybody else was a diplomat <laughs> wearing a suit. So I was a complete sore thumb. But um, you had a Hawaiian shirt on, or oh no, 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 no! I have some class, mate. I have some class, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I met this this uh, Brazilian entrepreneur from startup. Was also there, but he was in a suit, um, and uh, he was growing artificial meat. I was like, that was his business. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's it's closer than we think, eh? It's closer than we no, think. No, and, and and you know the you know this is going to push it over the edge, I think, for for a lot of people. But that um, supply chain. A view of food production is has really changed significantly. Mm. We're going to automate a lot of the supply chain. The ingredients will get to factories quicker or labs, and they'll they'll produce uh, um, you know this stuff, uh, spit it out, and then deliver it to our, our door. You know, like U- Uber style. Mm. Although I don't know how Uber's going to go with the coronavirus, but uh, yeah. We'll, well, I'm still buying, man. I'm still buying. I don't have time. Yeah. Boil eggs. What the hell. Uh, so Brett uh, last question let's wrap this up why do you do what you do what gets you out of bed in the morning as you've probably gathered I am a techno optimist I um, I've studied history I look at the changes technology has wrought on society over over the last 300 years and that's largely inevitable that that cycle is going to continue if not speed up I'm optimistic about the future and so um, I'm, as, as many futurists, I'm in a hurry to get to the future as quickly as possible. And so that's really what enthuses me. It's uh, how do I get up in the morning? How do I change people's lives so they don't see this technology as a threat to their existing way of life, but they see it as a way to improve our lot as a whole, as a species. And I think collectively it's time for humanity to start focusing on how do we make life better for the entire planet, for everybody? We have the technical resources and the intelligence and the engineering skills and the entrepreneurial skills to do that. We just have to set our mind to it. And if that's the case, it doesn't have to be us and them. It doesn't have to be the 1% and the 99%. Everyone can benefit from this if we put our mind to improving the system um, for the species as a whole. And that's uh, what gets me up in the morning. Cool. Let's do it. Brett, where can, where can um, our listeners go and get more information about you? Sure. You can go to brettking.com um, and check that out. Um, yeah, that's my uh, personal homepage. Um, you can check out Movin or Movin Enterprise, which is the, uh, the fintech startup I have. Um, you can also go to breakingbanks.com or provoke.fm, which is our media company, handles uh, the podcast, and, uh, or provoke management, provoke social, which are elements of the business as well. Um, yeah, uh, check out my – go to Twitter, at Brett King. Um, check me out on LinkedIn. Um, you know, social media is the main way I communicate with people these days. So we're happy to take inquiries in the digital realm. Brett King, you've been a legend. Thanks for playing along. Thanks, mate. Cheers. No worries, man. Woo. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.